On today's episode of The Pactum, I sit down with my friend David Van Drunen to talk about the important matter of natural law. But if natural law is new to you, I might suggest that you listen to episode 27 first as a primer so as to be ready for the deep dive that Dave and I do as we talk about matters relating to natural law. So sit back, relax, and enjoy The Pactum. Hey, everybody, and welcome to The Pactum. I'm Pat Abendroth, and we have a great episode today where we're going to be talking about natural law. This is episode 52. I'm thankful to have a natural law expert in the room. I'll introduce him in just a little while. But if you're listening to The Pactum today and you sense a disturbance in the Pactum verse, I may know why. Perhaps it's because we are not in our posh Pactum studio as normal. I'm not with my co-host Mike Grimes as normal, but I am in sunny Southern California, and I am with a whole room filled with, oh, let's call them the Pactum Posse, a bunch of friends of the Pactum, and we're on the campus of Westminster Seminary, California, with a distinguished Guest. Our guest is a minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the Robert B. Strimple Professor of Systematic Theology and Christian Ethics at Westminster Seminary, California. He is the author of many books, including Living in God's Two Kingdoms and Politics After Christendom. Our guest today is David Van Drunen. Hi, Dave, and welcome to the Pactum. Good to be here, Pat. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for hosting us. We really appreciate you hosting us here on your beautiful campus. It's always good to have Nebraskans on campus. All right. You heard it here on the Pactum. So how many times have you been to Omaha? Well... I'm putting you on the spot here. I believe I've been to your congregation twice. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've been to Omaha, you know, here and there, passing through a number of other times. Okay. But never had as much fun as when I'm with you. That's That's really important that you say things like that. It makes me feel nice and warm inside. So, Dave... Fortunately, it's actually true, so... Okay. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. I do appreciate it. So we do have a couple of rules here on the Pactum, Dave. I just want to make you aware of them. Um, we don't say feelings very often unless we actually mean feelings. Uh, and then we never say journey. So just so you're aware, if you say either one of those words today, I, I might have to call you out on it or at least give you a hard time for it. Well, you know, if you uh, take a bike ride up to Temecula, there's a golf course up there called The Journey. Oh. So you might want to keep your eyes open for that. Okay. That might be okay, right? Okay. If, if it's a golf course, not a church though, right? Fair enough. Okay. All right. Well, we did an episode a while back, episode 27 on natural law. And uh, I think we did a pretty good job because we used a lot of things that you've written uh, <laughs> and others. And it was a helpful podcast. We got good responses or a helpful episode. Uh, but I did promise on that episode that we would one day, uh, that we didn't pretend to be experts, but we would one day have an expert on natural law. And I think you are an expert on natural law. Well, that's a lot of pressure, (laughs) but I have done a lot of thinking and writing about it. Excellent. So I think I have about 10 or so questions. Uh, We might deviate a bit from that. But my first question is, what is natural law? I think it's helpful to start with the idea of God's natural revelation. So in Uh, In our theology, we often distinguish between natural and special revelation, special revelation being Scripture, uh, at least that's the special revelation we have now, uh, God speaking through his uh, prophets and apostles. Uh, And we also speak of natural revelation, that God uh, reveals truth through this world that he made. And uh, 
God reveals a number of things through his natural revelation, but one of the things he reveals is his moral law. Okay. And that's really what I think we uh, mean theologically by natural law. It's the revelation of God's moral law in this created order that we as human beings, by virtue of being God's image bearers, by having reason and conscience, okay. that we can understand and that we are accountable to God for our response to that. Okay. So if we back up just for a moment, for clarity's sake, we talk about God's general revelation. It's general, everyone has it, right? It's not only for believers. That's right. I mean, just by virtue of being a human being living in this world, uh, God is constantly confronting us with revelation of himself and of of all sorts of truth. Okay, that's helpful. And then special revelation would be the Bible, Scripture, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, special revelation, right? That's right. So, that's so right. there is. It, it's unique. It's different. It's distinct. Can just for a moment, can we call it? It's not technical, but can we call it special law? We could. Yes. Okay. I, I, yeah, I would say that the 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 God's law as it's revealed in Scripture, we could call that special law. That's right. Okay, so we have that kind of special law, and then we have general law that's for everyone. That's right. Is that fair? That's right. Okay, that's helpful. So I have a quotation here from you uh, from one of your books about this, and I want you to just comment on it. Maybe this should be like a quiz show. You have to tell me what book it's from. I probably wouldn't do very well, but you can try. (laughs) Okay. Well, it is page 19. That's all I have written down (laughs) in my notes. So you say that God holds the nations of the world accountable to him primarily through the natural law rather than his revealed word. If you think about it, I mean, there are all sorts of, uh, think of all the nations of the world, and most of those nations of the world are not, you wouldn't say that they're Christian nations, they're not places where the Bible is well known. Sure. So uh, we're not going to say that God doesn't hold these people accountable to himself simply because they haven't heard the gospel preached or don't have access to the scriptures, Sure. Uh, but we think about... I think you know the most um, prominent text is Romans one, where um, Paul speaks about uh, how God makes Himself known in the things that have been made. Okay, and because of this, every person is accountable to God. So Paul explains that very clearly uh, in uh, Romans one, and you see other. I think you see lots of evidence for this in, uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, one of my favorite texts on this is the opening of uh, of Amos, where God holds these uh, six Gentile pagan nations accountable for their great sins. And you might think, well, how can He do that? I mean, they didn't they didn't have the Mosaic Law. They didn't stand at Mount Sinai. Um, well, obviously, God makes His law known to all peoples, um, and the explanation for that is that. Um, God makes it known through his natural revelation. That's a great example. natural law. Yeah. So Romans chapter 1 would be an important text through, through what he's made, right? Right. Uh, Romans chapter 2 would also be another important text. I think Romans 2 is also very helpful. Um, there, there are more, I would say, more debates about what's going on in Romans 2 than Romans 1, but I think there's a strong case to be made that um, in Romans 2, 14 and 15, yes. uh, that God is, uh, Paul is talking about the natural law. Uh, he speaks about uh, these uh, Gentiles who don't have the law, referring to the Mosaic law of sure. the Old Testament, right, right. Uh, and yet they have the things of the law written on their hearts. And they even do them to a degree. Not- right, and and by having that law, Paul says that you know they have their consciences excusing or accusing them, uh, right. and so it's 
And, and you know, we, we know this just by our ordinary experience that people have consciences. Sure. Um, people of no interest in Christianity feel the pangs of conscience. And you might ask, well, where, where does that come from? And I think Paul gives us a really good idea in Romans 2. It's actually, it's through that testimony of the natural law that God continues to remind all people, whether they want it or not. Sure, sure. He reminds them of himself, and he reminds them of his basic requirements for them, and that they're going to be held accountable for that. So we're not talking about salvation. We're not talking about these people doing everything perfectly. But there is a, there is a sense of right and wrong, even if it's not perfect, not, even if it's convoluted because of their sin. Uh, yeah. The, even pirates have a code. Uh, that's right. <laughs> Even pirates have a code. Yeah, I think it's it's important to rec- recognize that the the idea of natural law doesn't necessarily say anything about how much people actually obey the natural law. The natural okay. the, the idea of natural law that's good uh, makes clear that God makes His law known and holds people accountable for it. Okay, um, but we do know that people all people are sinners uh, and. As Romans 1 also says, that sinners are constantly prone to suppress the natural law, to corrupt mm-hmm. this natural mm-hmm. law. So we see remnants of it. Um, we, we, see, we see all sorts of people doing all sorts of things that are useful and beneficial mm-hmm. for their neighbors, for the, for the human race. Uh, but at the same time, because all are sinners, people are constantly trying to push that natural law aside for understandable reasons. Yes, yes. People, uh, sinners don't want to be reminded of their sin and of their accountability before the divine judge. Okay. So if I'm thinking about texts, again, Romans 1 is an important one. Romans chapter 2 is an important one. You mentioned Amos. Mm-hmm. Uh, Proverbs? I think Proverbs is really, really important. I think an, an underestimated source of oh, why do you insight say that? into natural law. Well, if you think about Proverbs— um, it you know Proverbs doesn't talk about the Mosaic Law. I mean, there are a couple of references to law there, but it's clear you read Proverbs; it's not like an exposition of the Mosaic Law. Okay, right? You could read Proverbs and not even know the Mosaic Law existed. Okay, right? If you just read it in isolation, right? Um, and yet, Proverbs—the whole book of Proverbs—is all about it's about morality. It's about how we ought to live. It's about wisdom. Uh, but how do we learn wisdom in Proverbs from the ant? We go to the ant and be wise, don't we? And there's, there's this constant sense that you learn wisdom by being observant, right? By, by experiencing this world, by looking around you, by seeing how things operate, by seeing what kinds of consequences there are for certain kinds of, of actions. And I think what this, what this reveals is that there is what I like to call a moral order to this world, uh, that God made this world— uh, with sort of this built-in moral system, you might say, okay. and that if we are to—let uh, me put it this way, that we are—God has made us in a certain way, and he's made this world in a certain way, and there's a certain way, therefore, of living in this world that brings blessings to others, that brings good things, that brings peace, and there are other ways of acting in this world that bring war and poverty and anger. Yeah, yeah. And this is this may not be the way people sort of define natural law in some kind of technical way, mm-hmm. but it testifies to the fact that there is this moral revelation in this world. So I want to use those texts as I'm building my own personal theology of natural law, and I also want to use the image of God 
mm-hmm. which you mentioned, were yeah. made in God's image. Yeah. Uh, and even though in Reformed theology we would affirm that the image has been marred, it's been perverted, corrupted, something like that, but is it still there? Well, I think we have to say it's still there. Um, even after the fall, Scripture speaks about the human race being in the image of God. And I think uh, you know, a really important text uh, uh, is Genesis 9, verse 6, which is part of the account of the covenant with Noah after right. the great flood. Right. And it's so interesting there that uh, as God makes this covenant with Noah, and, and with not just with Noah, but with the entire creation, it's with every living creature— um, that he makes reference to human beings in Genesis 9-6 as those who are made in the image of God. He's talking about fallen human beings. He's yeah. not talking about Adam and Eve. Right, uh, right. He's talking about all of us. And it's interesting that that appeal to the image of God there uh, is in the context of uh, God commissioning human beings to administer justice in this world. Hmm. Uh, so Genesis 9-5 uh, speaks of... Um, how God, God is going to hold accountable those who shed human blood. And then Genesis 9, 6, he says, he who sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. Oh. So it's as if God is kind of commissioning us to do his justice. Excellent. God's the ultimate judge of the world, right. but he actually commissions us as human beings to administer justice on his behalf. And this, this is part of what it's all about to be an image bearer of God. You remember in Genesis 1, Genesis one twenty six, God made made man in His image and likeness, and said, "Let them rule. Let them have dominion over the rest of uh, the creatures." Yes. To be an image bearer of God means to be commissioned to rule in this world. And Genesis nine six, it indicates that that there's still something of that commission left, even we, after the fall. We are still commissioned to do justice. When someone sheds human blood, we ought we have we're responsible. Uh, for um, for administering justice. And how does that relate to natural law? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think f- for one thing, it's grounded in our human nature. Okay, good. Right? It's not just that God just comes arbitrarily and says, hey, you human beings, why don't you, why, why don't you take up justice for me? Okay, good you know, point. He, yeah. he could have just gone to the horses and yep. said, well, why don't you? No, he, he came to, uh, why, why us? Because he's made us in a certain way, because he's made us in his image and likeness. Uh, because he has called us to be holy as he is holy. And so we are, we are to reflect his holiness and righteousness in a way that no other creature can. Okay. Um, and so I think that's part of it. But I also think part of it is that in this covenant with Noah, what God, specifically what God promises to do is to preserve this world that he's made. He says, summer and winter, seed time and harvest will not cease. So Noah's covenant's really big in this whole argument and debate. I think it's really big because this is, so, you know, covenants, I know you like covenants, right? I do. I do. I'm married. I am married. (laughs) Yeah. You you like that covenant. That's good. (laughs) Okay. Um, And you like all these biblical covenants too, don't you? I do, as a matter of fact. And I think the Noah covenant is, uh, it's really important. It it comes really early in scripture, but it's really foundational because Mm -hmm. this is the covenant by which God promises that he's going to preserve this world until the end of history. And not just believers. Not just believers, but all human beings and all living creatures. And the even, promise isn't that he's going to redeem them all. He never makes a promise that he's going to forgive sins or give everlasting mm-hmm. life mm-hmm. in this covenant. Uh, but you think about it, without this promise that he will preserve this world and preserve the human race, 
how would there be a world to save? How would there be people to redeem? How would there have been a world in which Christ sure. could have come? Right, right. So this is, it's very foundational. So since we're off and talking about the Noahic covenant, let's talk about the, the let's talk about common grace yeah. as it would relate to natural law. And if you want to weave it into the Noahic covenant or not, that's fine. Sure. But how does natural law relate to common grace? Is common grace a biblical thing? Some people don't like it. What's going on there? Yeah, I think it's it's really helpful to think of common grace and natural law in relation to each other. They're not they don't refer to the same thing. Okay, but I think it's hard to understand one without the other. Okay, so uh, yeah, I think I would want to begin by saying uh, I think we see foundations of common grace in the Noahic Covenant. I mean, okay, so but by common grace, what we mean ordinarily in theology is uh, God's. God's kindness and his mercy that he gives to this world in common. There's also this special saving grace that we, that we Christians experience. Right. Um, Rain falls on the just and the unjust. Right. right? So, okay. the, yeah. So, uh, so there is also this common grace, okay. this sunshine and rain that falls mm-hmm. uh, uh, upon all people. Uh, and I think you see the foundations of that, at least the you might say the explicit biblical foundations of that in the Noahic Covenant. Okay. Because this is where God has promised to preserve this world um, for all human beings and all creatures. Mm-hmm. So uh, where does natural law fit into this? Well, uh, in order for natural law to work, there has to be a world, there has to be a nature through mm-hmm. which God reveals himself. Okay. I mean, that's the whole point of natural law, right? That God reveals himself through this natural world. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that makes the, that makes common grace pretty important. That makes in a way a covenant pretty important because that's precisely the way that God maintains and sustains this natural order, which mm-hmm. reveals himself. Okay. Um, and so I would also say then that it, it's by God's common grace that he preserves all people in his image, despite sin. I mean, there's none of us that deserves by nature, you know, to be God's image bearer. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we, by sin, we despise that. Mm-hmm. We, we threw that away. But by God's common grace, he preserves all of us as his image bearers. Um, and so I think, you know, even that, that lingering knowledge of God and his, and his righteousness, it only exists because God, by his common grace, preserves us. He doesn't just send us right to hell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. uh, he maintains us. So. So, so maybe just for a moment, let's talk about the limitations of natural law. So we've talked about what it is and where it is in the Bible and why it's important. Yep. What, what can't it do? What doesn't it do? Because sometimes people, I guess, get weirded out and think, I, it sounds like you're teaching some kind of universalism, salvation apart from the gospel. Um, are you? Well, that, that that would be a terrible misunderstanding of natural law. Okay. Um, so, what, what are the limitations? Yeah. I, I knew that, but... <laughs> yes. The, the way I, that I think is... Maybe can put it really um, briefly, and I think helpfully, is that we're talking about natural law. We're not talking about natural gospel. Okay. that I've never heard that before. That's God's, good. God's law, or God reveals his law in the natural order... That's what we've been talking about. But God does not reveal his gospel in the natural order. How does he do that? Uh, We need the scriptures to tell us the way of salvation. Okay. It's only by scripture that we know of Christ, that we know of his atonement, that we know of the resurrection of the dead. I mean, Mm -hmm. these things, you don't know this by going to the the ant, right? Proverbs doesn't say, go to the ant 
and learn the way of salvation. Um, that's not going to work. So It could be in a children's book. <laughs> there probably is in a children's book somewhere, but it's probably not very helpful. Um, so I would say, if you think about what are the limits of natural law, the most obvious and most important is to say, look, it's, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to let you know of the law of God. It's going to let you know of your accountability before God. It's going to let you know that you deserve judgment before God, but it's not going to it's not going to tell you the way to escape God's judgment. So it, it will bring condemnation, Romans chapter 1, but it will not bring justification. That's, that's exactly right. Um, now, I think we might also say that a limit of natural law, this is related to it. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't give us the power to do God's law. It okay. reveals the knowledge mm-hmm. of God's law, but it doesn't do anything in our hearts to give us the actual ability to carry it out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so even on that level, you might say that there are limits to the okay. natural law. Yeah, that's helpful. I'm, I'm curious, Dave, to know about natural law versus natural theology, because are, I wonder, are they the same? Are they different? Some people I see using it almost synonymously, and yet other people seem to be using natural theology to talk about like being saved through nature or something like that. Help me out. How are those statements used, not used, misused? Yeah, I would. Uh, I think it's important to distinguish natural law and natural theology, even while seeing an important relation between them. So um, at the beginning of our conversation, we were ta- I, I was talking about the, uh, how natural law is an aspect of natural revelation, okay. right? So yep. there, there's this general category. God reveals truth through nature. Mm-hmm. Natural law is part of that truth, but it's not the only part of that truth. Okay. So another truth that God reveals in nature is himself. Okay. It's not just don't steal, don't kill, don't commit adultery. Mm-hmm. It's also there is a true and living God. Okay. Uh, who relates to us as human beings and holds us accountable. Uh, that's very clear in Romans 1 uh, uh-huh. as well, as we're, okay. we're talking about. So, uh, so if we think about the fact that God reveals himself in nature, and sometimes we call that the natural knowledge of God, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would say that specifically is what natural theology is getting at. Natural theology is, I would say— our theological reflection on God's revelation of himself in nature. Okay, so it's okay, provided you have a right under, a good understanding, to say and affirm natural theology. That's right. And I think you, you have to be really careful here because there are, there are a lot of people, in this, there have been a lot of people in conservative Protestant circles over the last century that have basically defined natural law or natural theology the way they've defined it makes it inherently bad. They've yep, defined yep. natural theology as our own human, sinful, philosophical attempt to find our own way to God. Yeah, I read a lot of that. Yep. Yeah. And, and and then it's a straw man, easy to attack. And right. I mean, if, if that's what you mean by it, of course that's bad. So maybe— But once you see that it, if, natural theology, if natural theology is our reflection on God's revelation in nature in a way that's similar to, say, how our— biblical theology or our systematic theology is reflection on God's revelation in Scripture, then I think you can say, okay, well, there's, there's actually a right way to do natural theology. Yep, yep. Just to use simple labels, which can sometimes be more confusing than not, in my mind, I'm thinking natural law, yes, natural theology, yes, naturalism, no. Just to use my, my <laughs> yeah. kind of labels Yeah. that says you could be saved through nature or 
Right, right. I mean, there's, there's, there's absolutely no question in my mind or in any kind of historic uh, Reformation theology that there's a possibility of salvation through knowing nature or following the dictates of nature or any way we can find our way to God through nature. Okay, good. My next question has to do with the sufficiency of Scripture, because I think you affirm the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, I affirm the sufficiency of Scripture. I think 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 are true. Uh, I'm all about it. Uh, I think sola fide, sola gratia. I'll go through the list. Sola scriptura. Oh, there it is. That seems to be in contradiction to natural law in a lot of people's thinking. Is it in contradiction? No, it's definitely not. Um, you know, I, I think it's important to understand what sola scriptura means in historic Reformation theology. Okay, we're ready. Yeah. What it means is not that we can find every piece of information we need for every activity we do in this world in a verse in Scripture. No Reformed theologian has ever thought that. True? Uh, no Reformed theologian of any repute. Okay, good. All right. So— You sound like you're an attorney. Are you? I— I can neither affirm nor deny. <laughs> so, but I think sometimes people sort of like think that is like something that Sola Scriptura is getting at. What, what Sola Scriptura historically gets at is the idea that we don't need any other form of special revelation other than the Bible. We don't need a pope in Rome. We don't, receiving new revelation. Right. We don't need a, a, a magisterium mm -hmm. that can speak in a way that binds our consciences. Uh, we don't need to go into a trance and get some kind of vision from God to tell us what to do or yes. what to yeah, think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. Uh, we, uh, the scriptures alone are our final authority for Christian faith and life. That's what it means. But, you know, what I was getting at earlier, it doesn't mean that if you're having a problem with your chemistry homework, that you can find a verse in Scripture that's going to give it to you, right? I mean, and, and hardly anyone no. believes that, but no. it's almost like we forget that we don't believe that, right? at least coming out of maybe a fundamentalism kind of background, a biblicism kind of background. Right. We think, oh, natural law, that's contrary to the sufficiency of Scripture, but, but it's not. It's, it's not at all. Can I add two things to please, that? Please, please. Okay, so one— um, I think this is important, that if you think about the scriptures and you read the scriptures, we don't read the scriptures with our minds a blank slate, right? I mean, we come to the scriptures knowing something about this world, mm -hmm. and the scriptures presume that we know something about the world. Okay. The scriptures refer to the sun and the moon. Mm -hmm. The scriptures refer to Jerusalem and Egypt and Babylon. Mm -hmm. The scriptures refer to horses and dogs. Now, you might say, well, uh, of course— well, if you had no knowledge of this world, you would have no idea what those things are referring to. Hmm. Scripture doesn't provide uh, a glossary defining every word it uses. I mean, it, it presumes that we know something about this world. And I would suggest that it presumes that we know certain things that are more substantive. Uh -huh. <laughs> and uh -huh. So that it actually, Scripture speaks to people who know something already about God and his will simply by living in this world. It doesn't come to people who are just these moral blank slates. So that's, that's one thing that, that, that I think is important mm -hmm. to, to, to get at this point. And um, another thing is this, is that 
I think we – I mean I, I believe I, – I would think that you believe that when we proclaim the gospel to the world, mm-hmm. that the world is in some way ready to hear it. What do you mean by that? What I mean is that human beings, even though they don't admit it, or many of them won't admit it, mm-hmm. they know they're sinners. <laughs> they right. know they're miserable. Right. They know they need help. How do they know that? They know it because of God's natural revelation, including God's natural law. It impresses mm-hmm. upon them that they're sinners. It impresses upon them that there's such a thing as right and wrong, and that if they don't get things straightened out, they're in deep trouble. And that's why the gospel, I think we're confident that the gospel actually can resonate with people. Hmm. Um, and I think, you know, why would we want to throw out the idea of natural revelation, natural law? This is actually so useful for providing – it's like providing the soil in which we can plant the seed of the gospel. So it's not opposed. It actually works together with our Christian ministry. Right. And, and you think – I mean we are talking about Romans 1 and 2 earlier. Mm-hmm. I mean there's a reason why before Paul sets out his gospel in the most clear, beautiful way that it does anywhere in the scriptures, mm-hmm. right? In Romans I, I 3, agree. 3 and following – how does he lay the foundation? A very important part of the foundation is explaining the natural law. It's not a coincidence that he does it in Romans 1 and 2. Yep, He's laying good. foundation for the gospel message. Yep, that's super helpful. So I've been a Christian for I don't know how many years, a long time. Uh, I've been a Christian pastor for maybe 30 years. For the longest time, I've been studying the Bible seriously for a long time. For the longest time, Dave, I didn't really know anything about natural law. I, I knew the text of scripture we've talked about, but that that label. I didn't hear people talk about natural law. I didn't really have a category for natural law. Do you have any sense as to why people aren't familiar with this? Because I know I'm not the only one. Yeah. That actually is a difficult question because it is puzzling uh, in a lot of ways, something that seems to be such a useful category and a very biblical Mm -hmm. category. Mm -hmm. Um, It certainly was not the case that through the early years of Reformation theology, that natural law was unknown. I mean, all these early Reformed theologians, as well as early Lutheran and Anglican Baptist theologians, I mean, they talked about natural law. I mean, it was, it was just part of, part of Protestant theology. So it's not a new fandangled... Not at all. Escondido, California Seminary, Dave Van Drunen <laughs> kind of thing. It is definitely not that. I discovered it in, in other people and found it very interesting. But, but having said that, I found it in these older theologians and... It, you know, back when I was first starting to, you know, to think seriously about this 25 years ago or so, it was in the context of the fact that actually no one's talking about this in our circles. Hmm. So th- there was, uh, and, I, and I think this is part of the puzzle as to why it kind of just fell, fell out of use, particularly in the 20th century. I think there's a longer story, but I think if I could just try to put it quite briefly I think there was a lot of a lot of things happened in the 20th century in 20th century Protestant theology that it made it a very it was not a historically strong period of Protestant theology. Okay. There was kind of a blindness to a lot of our own our own history and the there was the, the, this there's this narrative that became very popular that natural law is sort of this product of medieval thinking. And of course, we don't like medieval mm-hmm. thought because, well, we're Reformation 
people and we rebelled against medieval theology. I think lots of people I talk to today, if I say natural law, they're going to say, oh, Roman Catholic. Right. And so part of this narrative is, well, it was medieval and the Reformation rejected that, but Roman Catholics are the ones who are carrying this forward. Yep, yep. And and then I think part part of the narrative as well, you know, people believe in natural law because they they don't have a deep enough sense of human sin. They think mm-hmm. we can know all yeah, this stuff from I, God. I'm, I'm hearing that kind of stuff even now. Yeah, and so I mean, I just think, you know, I mean, all the stuff that we've been talking about thus far, I I, I hope that that would be helpful for people to alleviate some of those myths because they really are myths. I mean, that is just not a true account of of history. It's not a true account of really what natural law is. Um, so, but, yeah, I, I, I just, you know, sometimes it happens. You get these narratives, you get this kind of conventional mm-hmm. wisdom that kind of takes hold. I think that's what happens. But I think it's very encouraging that over the last couple of decades, um, it's, it's not just me. I mean, there are lots and lots of other people who have, have, have seen this and people who have said, yeah, it's just, it's, it's very obvious. This is part of our history as as Reformation Christians. Okay. Um, you, so. you state in one of your books, natural law was a standard feature of Reformed theology from the Reformation to the early 20th century. It was. Would, would it, you agree with that? It's just a fact, yes. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I mostly agree with myself, you know. Okay. But, you know, things I said a long time ago, you never know. But, I think that's But fair, that's still true. Right? That's important. Yeah. That's important to say. What kind of bad things happen when we reject natural law? Well, I think, you know, I think part of the good news is that, and I, I think I, I would guess that this is true for yourself. You can tell me whether this is right or not. My guess is that even before you kind of became aware of some of this stuff we've been talking mm-hmm. about, yep. that you probably kind of implicitly believed in something like it because you read the scriptures. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so I do think that a lot of people who think they don't believe in natural law actually do believe in a version of it. And okay. so I think that's, that's kind of good news. Yep, that's, I agree. That's, that's half good news anyway. Yep. But I think that, I mean, I, I think one of the things that I would say is that what, one of the things we lose is just, it, we lose a very helpful way of making sense of the world we live in. Um, it's, I think it's really hard to make sense of this world if you don't think that God is revealing his law mm-hmm. to all people through nature and that all people have they have some knowledge of that, even if they suppress it. It just makes sense of this world. I do want to follow up with you talking about what kinds of things happen when we lose sight when it comes to something like preaching. Mm. So as a Christian preacher, I preach every week, try to be faithful to Scripture, preach God's Word, what it says. But I, I don't have the answers that everyone's looking for about everything in life. Does natural law help out there? Uh, yes, I would think so. Um, I, I think that's a really important thing for all pastors to remember, and I think it's something important for all people sitting listening to their pastors, that pastors pastors don't have answers for everything. They're not supposed to have answers for everything. Talk to me more about that, because I think that's actually helpful. Yeah. Lots of people think we do or so, yeah. we're supposed to. Yeah, right. That when a, pastor, when a church is looking for a pastor, they, they shouldn't be looking for someone who has— um, Wow, I mean, he's got uh, he's got great insights on um, biotechnology. Yes, he's got great insights on politics. He's got great insights on uh, on ancient Near Eastern uh, history. I mean, why do we? Why should churches call pastors? They call past, They call them because, as what as the pastoral epistles say, right? They rightly handle the word of God. Mm-hmm. 
you know, you think of First, Second Timothy, and Titus. Sure, what are pastors sure. supposed to be doing? Yeah. Right, preach the word, yeah. rightly handle the word. Yeah, um, and that word is not about timeless truths for understanding everything. Right, it, that right. word is about Christ and redemption. Yeah. And, that's right. And so I'd say, well, what is your job as pastor of Omaha Bible Church? Well, preach preach the scriptures week after week after week. Um, as you have opportunity to teach or counsel or disciple, you teach the word yes. uh, to people. And does that are people going to have lots and lots of questions about lots of things that aren't addressed in scripture specifically? Yes. I mean, of course, life is filled with difficult questions. Yes. Um, and I think you can... They make they. I'm sure they do. They often come to you and ask you about these things. You can probably. I, I think you have you have some responsibility to help them think through certain things and to help them grow in wisdom. But I think getting to this whole idea of wisdom is really mm-hmm. important. Right mm-hmm. back to Proverbs is that um, uh, we all have responsibility in whatever callings God has given us in whatever place in life that we find ourselves. Mm-hmm to be exercising this wisdom, a wisdom which is available in this world that God has made, yes, and yes. to make responsible decisions for ourselves and those who are under our um, authority. So um, again, I, I guess I would say, I, I think it's good for pastors, you want to help your people grow in wisdom. Yes. That's part of what you're yes. doing. And you want to help give them the tools to be able to think, help them to think clearly about what God's Word says about the natural law. Yes. But it, you can't just do all of their thinking for them. No, one of the great things I've benefited from your writings on natural laws, it's helped me to have conviction conviction to oftentimes to say, I don't know. I, I, I'm not expert in that. Yeah. And I want them to learn about natural law. I want Christians to learn about natural law so they can learn basic things about life Sometimes even from unbelievers who've studied the world that God made better than some believers have. That's another interesting thing about about the scriptures is that wisdom. Scripture itself acknowledges that there's wisdom found outside of the covenant community. Yes, that's a, that's a great way to put it. And I mean, there are a couple texts in Proverbs that probably were written by non-Israelites. Hmm. And we could we don't need to get into that, but it's really interesting. I mean, there are a number of places the Old Testament speaks about the wisdom of the Edomites or the wisdom of the men of the East. Uh, you know, you think hmm, that's that's really interesting. It is. Um, it is. So clearly, there is, um, and this gets back to natural law, doesn't it? Well, where is this wisdom coming from? It came from God. It didn't come from them, right? It came so- from God, and obviously, they they got it by being observant to the world that God has made. Yes. And so, by God's common grace, applying themselves in certain ways that gave them insights. And very often they get insights that oh, we'd never thought about that. Yes. And so the Edomites wouldn't have given God glory as they should, but a believer could have watched them and given God glory for making the world that way, yeah, right? That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Helpful. Well, now, now, now is when things turn controversial mm. on the Pactum, uh, as if some of the stuff hasn't been controversial. But we did an episode not too long ago. Uh, it was episode 17 for our listeners called Saying No to Theonomy. And one reason why this whole topic has become important for me is because more and more people I know are finding theonomy appealing. Uh, and I think oftentimes when I read people who are theonomists, uh, they don't like natural law. Uh, and they say say things very negative toward natural law. And let me just give you an example. 
Natural law has its appeal because it pretends to neutrality and so is perceived by many Christians as non-religious, a non-religious paradigm and therefore a useful tool for engagement with the secular sphere. So that's the quote I want you to interact with, if you would. Um, they are, they're saying they don't like natural law because uh, somehow it's neutral um, and we're appealing to something that's neutral. How would you respond to something like that? Well, I mean, I think the first thing to say is that it strikes me, and I don't know who said it, I don't know the context, but it strikes me as a classic example of someone defining something in a certain way. You take a term, a well-known term, you define it in your own way, which is different from how Reformed theologians have traditionally defined it, and then yes. you condemn it based on your own definition. So, I mean, I, I, I hope... I'll, all your listeners who have been paying attention so far would realize that the natural law as that writer described it is not the natural law we've been talking about. Absolutely We've not. been talking about natural law as God's law. I mean, how in the world, if it's God's law revealed through his revelation, how in the world is that neutral? Not at all. I mean, yeah, it doesn't that, make, it, it, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And so, I knew that word in particular would get your dander up. Yeah. Well, you know— I. I think just thinking about this generally, I mean, it doesn't seem to me that there's any good reason in theory for a theonomist not to like natural law. I mean, I, I, I mean, I can't, I, I really can't think of, uh, of a reason in theory why a theonomist should not believe or would not want to believe that God reveals his law in nature. So I think, but, okay, but all right, good. I would, I, 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 and I think this came out in this quote as well. Uh, I think, I think many of them have a negative reaction to natural law because I think maybe one, it doesn't really seem necessary to talk about it because if you really think that the law of Moses provides some sort of a comprehensive civil code or something for, like for that. All for all, all people times, at all times. Not just the unique nation of Israel. It's like, well, okay, you know, even if natural law existed, maybe it's really not that important because we have, we have what we need mm-hmm. in, in Exodus through Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one thing. And then secondly, um, I mean, I do think, you know, and I, you know, I, I don't know if this is just this quote. I, I, I don't know if this is someone who is making an innocent error or someone who is purposefully twisting what natural law is. It's someone who is stridently opposed to any kinds of two kingdom theology, any oh. kinds of it's. Well, I, I, I yeah, I, I guess I, 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 I can't judge that person's motives, but what I can say is that if you are, um, yeah, I mean, if, if, if you just want to think of natural law as this sort of neutral, autonomous way of talking about ethics apart from God, then, okay, I can certainly understand why theonomists wouldn't like it, yes. but of course you and I wouldn't like that either. Right, right. But they're basically yeah. saying we have two yeah. choices here. We either have theonomy and, as they would say oftentimes, or autonomy. And any kind of natural law assumes it's totally autonomous, yeah. which is a straw man kind of argument. Uh, it's a total straw man argument. And I think, I mean, if you wanted to turn it back, you know, if, if we're going to get in the business of redefining terms for our own purposes, um, why don't we redefine theonomy? Because theonomy means the law of God. So if I confess natural law, I'm a theonomist. Okay. You heard it here on the Pactum from Dave Van Drunen. <laughs> So since we've waded into the pool of controversy, uh, let's talk just briefly about Thomas Aquinas. Uh, you mentioned him earlier. Did you mention him earlier? No, you didn't. I don't think I did. No, you didn't. Um, that's a real hot topic right now in 
reformed evangelical circles because you can't affirm anything Thomas Aquinas affirms uh, because that would make you Roman Catholic uh, or something like that. So it's in the doctrine of God debates going on right now, but also it would be relevant in our context talking about natural law. Um, Thomas Aquinas invented natural law, the only guy that we can learn from about natural law. I just want you to dispel that myth. Yeah, Thomas certainly didn't invent natural law. It had been around for many, many, many centuries. I mean, we might say natural law has been around for as long as, as, long as the world's been I, around. I knew you were going there. The, uh, the theory of natural law was around for a very long time before Thomas came on the scene. And um, it, it's kind of interesting. I mean, Thomas actually spent very little time talking about natural law when, when you consider how much he wrote, hmm. just in a huge corpus of works. And he actually wrote quite little about natural law, but he has become, I mean, I think you can say he's the most famous proponent of natural law uh, through history. Um, and and yet he is only one of basically every classical, uh, not just reform, but basically every classical Christian theologian mm-hmm. affirmed, has affirmed natural law. So mm-hmm. okay. Thomas is just one of a multitude, including basically every reform theologian until yesterday. So <laughs> I um, like it. I, I like mean, it. I, you know, that it, it, it is a bigger question with Thomas Aquinas and we can't settle that in a couple of minutes here. Sure. But I do think there's, there's been some really helpful work that's been done recently. And I just, I think trying to give a more balanced or nuanced account of Thomas Aquinas, I, you know, ordinarily in life, we, you just can't put people in the category of good person, bad person. Right. I mean, just in sort of ordinary life, I mean, we're kind of all mixed people, right? And I think one of the things you recognize looking at past theologians, it's not really helpful just to try to put every theologian into good or bad. Mm -hmm. Uh, That uh, I think it's important that we recognize that the Church of Jesus Christ did not begin in the 16th century. Um, Why is that important to remember? Well, Jesus said in the first century, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Okay, that's So if a, that's there was good, no church a, until the 16th reason. century, that was a real problem. That's a good reason. So, and I think, so we remember that Thomas Aquinas was, he was, he's one of our theologians in the sense that patristic and medieval church history is our history. That, now, there was, there was a real need for a reformation. We praise God for the reformation. Amen. But there were, um, uh, it's not as if, there was no interesting, important, insightful theological work done before the Reformation. And Thomas was a really important Christian theologian that I think it would, it would do people well. I mean, people who want to read theology, it, do, it would do them well to actually take him seriously and to okay. actually figure out what he says. And there are a lot of, have been a lot of Reformed theologians um, who they, they, they read Thomas, they disagree with him about some things, they agree with him about other things. There are some Reformed theologians who said he was, he was one of the better of the scholastic theologians okay. uh, of the Middle Ages, which, okay. is, which is kind of interesting. Um, and I think that's the right way uh, to look at it. Thomas Aquinas isn't a good guy or a bad guy. He's one of the church's theologians uh, through its history. And I think there are things we should agree with him on. There are things we need to disagree with him on. Um, actually, I think natural, we don't need to agree with everything that he said about natural law. I would not put natural law in exactly the same way he does. I see. Yeah. But I think he was just affirming, he was just affirming a basic Christian doctrine when he was defending natural law. Okay. Two of your writings that I recommend to people and we've recommended in the past, I'll recommend them again when it comes to natural law and learning things. One would be a biblical case for natural law. 
That's the smaller book that's very accessible, correct? Right. Okay, so Biblical Case for Natural Law. I also really, really appreciated Chapter 5 in your book, Politics After Christendom, because you deal with natural law matters and Noahic Covenant. Dave, I'm super grateful for you, for the Lord's work in your life, for your writing ministry and teaching here at the seminary and the influence on people's lives. Thank you for doing the Pactum today. It means a lot to me. Well, uh, thank you for those kind words. Um, I'm very grateful for Omaha Bible Church. You've been a real encouragement to me, so my pleasure to be here. Wonderful. If you would like to reach out to Dave Van Drunen on social media, I just want you to know that he has taken a vow of silence. Uh, like some of our other guests, you won't be getting in touch with him on Getter or Instagram or Twitter. But if you would like to be in touch with the Pactum, you can reach out to us. We're not as sanctified as our guest, Dave Van Drunen, my friend. Uh, but you can find us on Twitter at the Pactum, Getter at the Pactum, Instagram at the Pactum Theology or thepactum.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on The Pactum. Pactum.